This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, almost good evening. Um, I'm Paula Varsano, Professor of East Asian Languages and Cultures and Chair of the Forster Lectures Committee. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Council and Graduate Division, to present Jane Taylor, this year's speaker in the Forster Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated to tell you, it's really my pleasure to tell you, how the endowment supporting the Forster Lectures for the, on the Immortality of the Soul came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. In 1928, Ms. Edith Zweibrook established the Forster Lectureship to honor the memory of Agnes A. Forster and Constantine E. A. Forster. Edith was a public school teacher in San Francisco for many years, and the teaching profession was to her an opportunity to develop a true knowledge and love of the spiritual values of life in the young minds entrusted to her care. Edith's beloved sister, Agnes A. Forster, shared her high ideals and hopes, as did Agnes's husband, Constantine E. A. Forster. A lawyer by profession, Forster was a man of high intellectual achievements and of rare personal charm. Although he passed away at the age of 37, he had achieved an enviable place at the San Francisco Bar and was considered one of its most highly respected members. For several years prior to his death, Forster was a law partner of Alexander F. Morrison, one of the most prominent of San Francisco attorneys for whom our Morrison Memorial Library is named. In her last days, Miss Edith Zweibrook expressed her deep and abiding interest in the spiritual life by creating this lecture series on the subject of the immortality of the soul or other similar spiritual subjects. She believed that through the medium of a great university and the words of scholarly lecturers, she might bring new light upon a subject that has interested the world for centuries. So we all would like to thank Edith Zweibrook. And now about our lecturer. Jane Taylor is a prominent South African writer, playwright, and academic whose body of work exhibits very little concern for the divide we commonly recognize between the creative and the scholarly. As a co-editor of Refiguring the Archive, we can see her mastery of academic discourse as she engages with the archive to examine the thick web that binds politics, psychology, memory, and forgetting. True. But... Taylor has also explored these and related subjects in the plays she has written, most notably in the multimedia work Ubu and the Truth Commission, which was directed by William Kentridge for the Handspring Puppet Company. And then there is her novel, and I've heard a couple of people in the audience talking about it, as a matter of fact, The Transplant Men, about the first heart transplant performed in Cape Town. Again, we see... Taylor's interest in the archive, but now novelistically intertwined with her reflections on the, continu- on the continuity of the self, if not the immortality of the soul, in its entanglements with the discontin- discontinuous body and the reframing of documentary representation. 
and for her most recent inquiries into the complexities of the divided self in the face of autocratic institutions, I direct you to her recent work, Led by the Nose, a performative reflection on William Kentridge's production of The Nose for the New York Metropolitan Opera in 2010. Jane Taylor may be interested in divided selfhood, in the revelatory power of obfuscation, and in the obfuscatory power of apparent transparency. But she herself is an incandescent thinker and the warmest of friends, and she thinks and acts with a singular clarity and intention. I say that she acts because in seamless harmony with her intellectual pursuits, she is also the material performance convener of loco, that is the laboratory of kinetic objects, and is also deeply engaged in a project in rural South Africa to train the children of local farmers to make and manipulate puppets. For myself, in the several years in which I've had the happy fortune to count myself among her friends, since she stayed among us in 2016 as the Avenali Chair in the Humanities, I can say that the greatest of pleasures is to be found in watching and hearing Jane Taylor think. As you are about to discover, she has brought the practice of thinking out loud about almost anything from a puppy's sudden rambunctiousness to a philosopher's recondite ruminations to the level of a high art. And so today, Unless she decides to digress and talk about her friend's pets, Jane Taylor's lecture considers Wittgenstein's late paper on certainty. Taylor notes, in our contemporary context of the precarious on one hand and the political vehemence of conviction on the other, it seems timely to pay attention to the faltering and tentative mode of regard and thought of one of the 20th century's most enigmatic thinkers. And so it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Jane Taylor back to Berkeley. What outrageous pleasure that was. Thank you so much, Paula. And I'd also really like to thank the Foster family and the committee for giving me the opportunity to be here in a conversation again with people whom I have really grown to love. So my very warmest thanks. When I came home, I expected a surprise, and there was no surprise, so of course I was surprised. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking today about Wittgenstein's curious and profound intimations concerning the certain as well as uncertainty, and how these will attach themselves, like hand in glove, to questions about the immortality of the soul. My point of departure is taken from skeins of thought in Wittgenstein's late writings on certainty. But I begin with a short preamble. Some years before, Wittgenstein, at mid-career, renounced his earlier model of thought and language such as he had puzzled about in his Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, a work of idiosyncratic and elliptical poetic density that deals with enigmas such as the surprise. That early work has come to be identified as a picture theory of language, and the Tractatus was the only book of his published in his lifetime. His later major writing 
was collected and published posthumously as Philosophical Investigations in 1953, some two years after his death. At Cambridge, he had various significant interlocutors, some of whom fell away from him over the years, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, the economist Piero Schraffer, literary and cultural critic F.R. Levis, and the philosopher G.E. Moore. Within the rules of the language game that one might call Cambridge philosophy, Wittgenstein, in his last months, seemed to be directly engaging with Moore. When, in 1939, Moore had set out to refute real-world scepticism, that is, doubt in the substantial reality of a knowable material world, he deployed a gestural trick to underscore his rhetorical argument. He held up his one hand while asserting the premise, here is a hand. He then raised his other hand while stating, and here is another. With this demonstration, Moore believed himself to have shown that the world exists and is not mind-dependent. Over several years, Wittgenstein had engaged in fierce intellectual discussion with Moore, and Wittgenstein's comments may suggest to the reader that they were antagonists in an archaic argon. Wittgenstein comments of Moore, he shows you how far a man can go who has absolutely no intelligence whatsoever. (laughs) I suspect that this seemingly dismissive comment is a measure of Wittgenstein's engagement in their dialogues. The two men had first met in 1911, when Wittgenstein was the student and Moore the teacher, though their roles were soon enough reversed. Moore was a close interlocutor, and the Austrian perhaps could not bear that they were so far apart in understanding and method. Wittgenstein thought Moore's mode of reasoning to be a failure of apprehension. It's not by holding up a pair of hands while asserting their existence that one meets the criteria for knowing, just as it makes no sense to assert, I know that there is a chair here and I am able to sit in it. This is where Wittgenstein distinguishes between knowledge and certainty. The existence inside the everyday is then transacted as an act of belief rather than one of fact. One can imagine Buster Keaton as a kind of Wittgenstein machine transacting his way through a world that alternately affirms, at times betrays such belief. Moore's well-known observations on the hand from the 1930s are clearly still in Wittgenstein's mind's eye when he is working through the notes for uncertainty over a decade later. This implies that the discussion had, for Wittgenstein, been unresolved. Uncertainty begins, as if in direct response to Moore, if you do know that here is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. That conditional if sets up the ground upon which the meditation becomes possible. What we can ask is whether it can make sense to doubt it. And we just do not see how very specialized the use of I know is. For I know seems to describe a state of affairs which guarantees what is known, guarantees it as a fact, 
one always forgets the expression, I thought I knew. <laughs> Knowledge and certainty belong to different categories. These opening thoughts situate uncertainty within the particular rules of the language game that pertained in Cambridge philosophical circles in the first decades of the 20th century. And at this point, I'm going to situate those considerations within a distinct field of meaning, another language game, if you will. It is the First World War. Three brothers are engaged on the Eastern Front. The young men are not fighting side by side, as one might imagine. Rather, each of them is, we may say, in a different battle zone, each in his own war, though there are, all of them, fighting on the side of the Habsburgs. Sons of one of the richest houses of Vienna, their saga becomes significant for history because the youngest of the three is Ludwig Wittgenstein, perhaps the most influential philosopher in England in the 20th century. I'm going to give a brief account of the three brothers and their encounters with the war. Let me begin with the eldest of the three. Toward the last phase of the war, in 1918, Kurt shot and killed himself because the soldiers under his command refused to obey his orders. It seems that his troops, who were largely made up of Czechs, Poles, Croats and Hungarians, no longer saw themselves as members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had begun to disintegrate. Rather, they had begun to identify with emerging fragmentary states, already given autonomy by the emperor. Disinclined to fight for the Habsburgs, the soldiers began to wander off toward their homelands, abandoning Kurt and their station. The body of this imperial state was beginning to disintegrate. Suicide was the root of least humiliation for their commanding officer. Such was Kurt's fate. He was, though, the third of Ludwig's brothers to commit suicide. The other two had died before the war, while Ludwig was just a boy. And here, a brief retrospective note on family history. The eldest, Hans, had been a musical prodigy and apparently something of a savant. He had apparently drowned himself while abroad. The second son, Rudy, had, in 1902, walked into his favourite bar in Vienna, ordered a glass of milk, and laced it with cyanide before drinking it publicly. He had reportedly sought help from the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, led by Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, which was campaigning against paragraph 175 of the German Criminal Code, which prohibited homosexual sex. It seems that Rudy was terrified that he was identifiable as a subject of Hirschfeld's research. What if he were inadvertently exposed by that work? Those deaths were family history, Kurt's suicide the third. But let us return to the young brothers engaged on the Eastern Front. The second of the three is Paul. Early in the war, in August 1914, Paul had been conscripted and was captured by Russia 
during an Austrian assault on Poland. In the skirmish, he was shot in the right arm and lost consciousness. On coming back to himself, he discovered that his arm had been amputated. This would be grim catastrophe for any of us, but for Paul Wittgenstein, distinctly so, because he was a concert pianist of some ambition. That musical ambition was surely part of a family burden. The Wittgensteins were all distinctly oriented toward music. The household had seven grand pianos. The firstborn son, Hans, the first suicide, had been a musical prodigy, and Ludwig could whistle entire movements from several well-known symphonies, an entertainment that he inflicted on his friends. Brahms, Mahler, and Richard Strauss were only the most famous of the musical visitors in the Wittgenstein household, and musical criticism was part of the family ethos. Paul is reported as having wailed at his brother Ludwig, I cannot play the piano when you are in the house, as I feel your scepticism seeping toward me from under the door. The wounded, one-armed Paul was for some time imprisoned in the dread Siberian fortress where Dostoevsky had set his novel, The House of the Dead. And here, he had to begin to reckon with the fact of his missing limb. It must have been a kind of therapeutic mania that drove him to set himself the task of rearranging conventional piano pieces for the left hand using a makeshift drawing of a keyboard on a wooden crate in order to imaginatively think through the placement of fingers on phantom notes. With this virtual piano, he perfected complex fingering with his left hand doing all the work so that the one hand might create the oral illusion of a two-handed playing. Paul engaged in this drill for up to seven hours a day, and in this process, he began to arrange Chopin's revolutionary etude for the left hand. Paul Wittgenstein's own transcription of the Chopin work for the left-handed player may well have been influenced by, um, the, the, by the fact that Leopold Godowski had set several arrangements of Chopin's etudes for the left hand. The, the arrangements are renowned for their technical difficulty and have been called the most impossibly difficult things ever written for the piano. Godofsky is by reputation cited as possibly the greatest classical pianist in history. It's likely that his left-handed transcriptions were composed in part just because he could play them and they served as a kind of technical challenge for him. Godofsky was probably unequaled in independence of hands equality of finger, and his ability to delineate polyphonic strands. Horowitz claimed that one needed six hands to play his Pascalia. Very few people ever saw him play live. He couldn't bear public performance, though there are some sound recordings which you can track down on the internet. There is some suggestion that Paul Wittgenstein must have known of these Godovsky arrangements and that they spurred him to his own arrangement of the Chopin revolutionary etude for the left hand. Of course, the textures of war so brilliantly evoked by Chopin may also have influenced this choice. Chopin's work is a distraught, 
oral response to the failed Polish uprising against Russia in 1831 and is likely to have had emotional magnitude for a young man who had lost an arm fighting on the Russian front. The piece had been dedicated by Chopin to his friend Franz Liszt, who, interestingly, had trained the gifted left-handed pianist Geza Zishi, who as a youth had lost a hand in a shooting accident. The work would have resonated with Paul for any number of reasons. I'm going to ask us to watch a fragment of this astonishing work, which was composed as Chopin's meditation on the bombardment of Warsaw, in part because it gives us uh, attention to what the left hand is doing in the playing of the piece. Remember, it's his right hand that he has lost. And so here's a short clip from Chopin's revolutionary etude, as originally written for two hands, played by Evgeny Kissin. And here you'll observe that what is going on in the hands seems to be mapped onto what is going on in the head as you glimpse Kissin's face now and again. feel something of a cheat uh, for having sort of tried to steal the glamour from Kissen in the middle of a paper of mine. Because Paul Wittgenstein was heir to one of the largest fortunes in Europe, he commissioned several composers of his generation to write works for the left-handed pianist. These include works by Ravel, Hindemith, Britton, Richard Strauss and Prokofiev. None of these pieces ultimately satisfied Wittgenstein. It's difficult to tell whether the works sounded too much like they were performed with one hand or too little as if they were. This is profoundly complex psychological terrain. The artist is, as it were, passing. He's caught between wanting to seem a two-handed virtuoso while he does not want the extremity of his situation to be overlooked. Nicholas McCarthy has a strong presence on YouTube, and his performances of Godovsky's arrangements of Chopin is very instructive viewing. 
Several years ago, I had a conversation with Luis Magalhães, a Portuguese South African pianist who plays several works from the one-handed repertoire. He indicated that in many ways, the left-handed compositions are satisfying to play because every pianist would like to have two left hands. As he explained, in the left hand, the strongest digit, the thumb, carries the melodic line, while in the right hand, this is done with the weakest digit, the pinky finger. So let me return then to the youngest of the three brothers, the philosopher Ludwig. Ludwig had been in Cambridge from, from 1911, studying philosophy with Bertrand Russell. When the war broke out, Ludwig was with his family in Austria, and he tried to leave Austria for Norway, but on being prevented from doing so, he volunteered for civilian duties. By August, he had signed up for military service in the Austro-Hungarian army. Bertrand Russell, back in Cambridge, was an earnest pacifist, opposed to conscription, and was in fact dismissed from Trinity College following his conviction under the Defence of the Realm Act of 1914 and went to prison for his pacifism during the war. He later described these processes in 1922 in his Free Thought and Official Propaganda. It was surely then something of a puzzle for Russell that Wittgenstein, his protégé, and someone whom he admired with an almost total adoration, had signed up to fight for Austria. While Ludwig was manning an anti-aircraft searchlight on a gunboat near Krakow, his diaries record that he was reading Nietzsche's Antichrist. Promoted to lieutenant, Ludwig was sent to the Italian front, where he was captured and spent the end of the war as a prisoner, apparently writing up the notes of his early major work, The Tractatus. This work has disquieted generations of readers, largely because of its enigmatic forms and unlikely idioms and that do not adhere to known philosophical procedures. Badiou has classified him as one of the anti-philosophers, along with Nietzsche, Lacan, and St. Paul. While Ludwig was engaged in war on the Austrian front, his dear companion, David Hume Pinsent, incidentally named after Pinsent's celebrated ancestor, the sceptical philosopher David Hume, had gone to fly test planes in England at Farnborough. A biplane bomber, which Pinsent was flying, spontaneously ripped into five pieces, killing Pinsent and his co-pilot. No trace of Pinsent's body was ever recovered, despite a presumably extraordinary search by 1,200 soldiers and the dragging of the canal. Wittgenstein was desolate at the death, and three years later dedicated his philosophical tractatus to him. The tractatus swerves between contesting idioms for representation, at times activating Vorstellen or Darstellen and Abbilden. Wittgenstein also uses the term bedeuten, to mean, to stand for, to signify, for the ways in which a name refers to an object and for the way in which philosophy obliquely indicates the unsayable. Wittgenstein 
demonstrates a quite extraordinary apprehension of the complex ordering of worlds that are simultaneously active. He notes that, quote, the description of a wish is the description of its fulfillment. This suggests that the material world and its representations are mutually entangled. And here I allude expressly to that term in order to remember that entanglement is a concept within a philosophical tradition arising from the community of ideas associated with quantum theory and the uncertainty principle in the years after the war. In a 1935 paper by Albert Einstein, Boris Podolsky, and Nathan Rosen, a paradox was described, known as the EPR paradox, named after the three surnames. That sought to demonstrate that pairs or groups of particles at times behave in such a way that they cannot be described independent from one another, even at times when the particles are at some distance apart. This is the basis of quantum mechanics. A property can thus be acted upon by something related to it, even if not visible from a particular point of view. The scientists attested to this even while considering it to be impossible. Einstein referred to it as spooky action at a distance. Erwin Schrödinger subsequently wrote several papers in which he examined these propositions and referred to entanglement to explain that a perception that is mine is not always true, that in fact my observations are necessarily influencing what it is that I'm able to observe. In other words, he challenges what is known as the local realist view of the world, such as Moore had committed himself to. The common sense horizons of personhood are, by convention, associated with the skin, which is its threshold. That assertion, of course, understates what we also know about the ways in which sensory information penetrates us in an endless riot of oral, visual, and olfactory information as sensory thrills or revulsions from outside strike us to the core. Freud was increasingly aware of this contradiction. Similarly, Freud notes the ways in which material extensions of the self have a prosthetic function, projecting one's body beyond the skin. In his metapsychological supplement to the theory of dreams, he notes, we are not in the habit of devoting much thought to the fact that every night human beings lay aside the wrappings in which they have enveloped their skin, as well as anything which they may use as a supplement to their bodily organs, so far as they have succeeded in making good use of those organs, deficiencies by substitutes. For instance, their spectacles, their false hair, and teeth, and so on. I'm going to show you several images of prostheses. The first two melancholy images are early facial prostheses from the First World War, used to conceal shattered bone and flesh. And such cases were integral to Freud's meditations on trauma. The third image is of the oral prostheses that Freud had to wear once the cancer had begun eating away inside his mouth. Only his daughter, Anna, was allowed to help him 
with the grim task of managing these. Okay, so let's return then to Wittgenstein's paper on certainty. The philosopher distinguishes between facts which we know that can and must be subjected to verification and testing and those things of which we are certain and which maintain the conditions necessary for existence and in which we believe. These certainties are propositions for which the principle of testing makes no sense. Wittgenstein's first words in the text on uncertainty are, if I do know that here is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. And he follows this up with, now do I, in the course of my life, make sure I know that here is a hand, my own hand, that is, this, this is, at one level, a direct response to more, yet how uncanny these lines become in light of the narrative disclosure of the family catastrophe. If any of you are prompted to read Wittgenstein on certainty after hearing this paper, you'll be astonished to discover how often the philosopher returns to the hand as his exemplary question. For example, if I don't know whether someone has two hands say whether they've been amputated or not, I shall believe his assurance that he has two hands if he is trustworthy. Or, the idealist's questions would be something like, what right have I not to doubt, what, have I, what right have I not to doubt the existence of my hands? Or, upon I know that here is my hand, they may follow the question, how do I know? And the answer to that presupposes that this can be known in that way. So instead of, I know that here is my hand, one might say, here is my hand, and then add, how one knows. I know that I am feeling pain. I know that I feel it here is as wrong as, I know that I am in pain, but I know where you touched my arm is right. Late in the collection, he notes, there are countless general empirical propositions that count as certain for us. One such is that if someone's arm is cut off, it will not grow again. Another, if someone's head is cut off, he is dead and will never live again. Experience can be said to teach us these propositions. However, it does not teach us them in isolation. Rather, it teaches us a host of interdependent propositions. If they were isolated, I might perhaps doubt them, for I have no experience relating to them. And then, I, LW, believe, am sure, that my friend hasn't sawdust in his body or in his head, even though I have no direct evidence of my senses to the contrary. I've worked for some years with Handspring Puppet Company, the makers of the puppets for Warhorse, and I'm aware how readily we embrace the liveness of the fabricated body, that friend that has sawdust in his body. 
the boundaries of persons have been profoundly altered through a vast range of material interventions, such as transplant and biotechnical interventions, such as pacemakers. The instances are exponentially amplified in range and number if we consider also the metaphysics of recent physics and the explosion of photography, telegraphy, and digital duplication. Such meditations at the level of the abstract and general have ceased to amaze us. Wittgenstein's early great love, David Hume Pinsent, was, as I have noted, a descendant of the Scottish philosopher for whom he is named, David Hume. The original, from whom Pinsent was a transgenerational copy, had suggested that there was only an internal claim about the external. And I quote from Hume, what causes induce us to believe in the existence of body? He posed the query, why do we attribute a continued existence to objects even when they are not present to the senses? This is very much the sort of question addressed by Wittgenstein. Perhaps these Humean questions had been shared by the two men at Cambridge before David disappeared, literally without a trace. After the war, Ludwig's brother Paul, for whom money was no object, commissioned a spectrum of the era's great composers to write works for the left-handed piano player. Korngold is the first, Ravel, Prokofiev, Hindemith, Britain and Strauss all receive commissions, as I note. Generally, he wasn't happy with these. And once again, I'm going to take our mind back to the question of passing. Piano playing is, for Paul, role playing. And in the 20th century Vienna, the role had become a question of life and death. Paul is, in all likelihood, named at least in some measure after the most famous converso in Western history, St. Paul, one of Badieu's anti-philosophers. What's in a name? The Wittgenstein grandfather, Hermann Charles, had converted. Why is it that a family with Jewish ancestry that has assimilated through marriage into a Catholic Viennese aristocracy would manifest a conspicuous trace in the name of the converso Paul that seems to declare that the family is passing. Originally known as Saul of Tarsus, St. Paul was a Jew and also a Roman citizen who spent his early career as a persecutor of Christians. In chapter 9 of the Book of Acts in the New Testament, there's an account of Saul's conversion. He's on the road to Damascus when he is thrown to the ground by a burst of sunlight which accompanies a great voice which demands to know, why persecutest thou me? We must imagine. Paul is rendered helpless, blind, and is effectively without sensory stimulus. We are told that he neither ate nor drank during this traumatic period. When he finally came back to himself so to speak, he was no longer himself. He'd become his enemy. Paul became the rock upon which the Christian church was founded, declared that henceforth there was neither Greek nor Jew, and asserted that circumcision should cease and that henceforth all circumcision 
should be circumcision in the soul, not in the flesh. By the way, if you search the internet now for images of the road to Damascus, as I did several months ago, you'll be given some insight into the catastrophe that is ongoing now in contemporary Syria. There are one or two images of the hanging gardens of Babylon, but the whole is overwhelmed by appalling scenes of parents wailing in the shattered streets with the sundered corpses of infants in their arms, with walls of fire around them. Paul Wittgenstein, in the 1930s, was a one-armed pianist who now could no longer move through his beloved Vienna because of the signs declaring Juden verboten. He tried at first to get assurances that the family would, as good assimilated citizens, be treated as Aryans. Paul was astonished to discover that the family was not secure. We count as Jews, was his cry, on reading the Nazi legislation on genealogy and race. He antagonized several family family members by trying to negotiate with the Nazis, offering to pay for their rehabilitation within German culture. Ultimately, he fled to New York at the start of the Anschluss. Decades later, and a world away, in New York, Erna Otten wrote to Oliver Sacks of her youthful encounter with Paul as her piano teacher. We are reminded again of the extraordinary entanglement of mind and flesh through her recollections of Paul. And I quote, As a very young student of the Viennese pianist Paul Wittgenstein, I had many occasions to see how involved his right stump was whenever he went over the fingering of a new composition. He told me many times that I should trust his choice of fingering because he felt every finger in his right hand. At times I had to sit very quietly while he would close his eyes and his stump would move constantly in an agitated manner. This was many years after the loss of his arm. As we know, Freud's meditations in Beyond the Pleasure Principle prompted a a series of subsequent considerations on the phantasmatic, the symptom, and trauma. Recent research involving what are named as mirror neurons, which are engaged to trick the mind in order to persuade the self of what it does not want to know. In some cases, individuals with persistent pain caused by a phantom limb, in other words, a limb which is not there due to some kind of catastrophe, can meaningfully be treated through observing the limb in a mirror so that the subject observes a mirror image of the existing limb in the place where the missing limb would cognitively exist. And by sending a message to that limb can fool the mind into believing that a non-existing limb has moved, say, unclenching a phantom hand, that has been frozen in a rictus for several years. Enigmatically, the brain can unlearn what it knows and relearn what it knows to be true. And here's an interesting set of considerations that has come to my attention through studying the left-handed concerto compositions. Many of the pianists today who play such compositions are two-handed, They've undertaken the performances as virtuosic displays 
as well as expressive interpretations. A few of them performed the left-handed Godofsky studies on Chopin's etudes as part of their standard repertoire. It's a demonstration of left-handed dexterity, a left-handed or sinister right-handedness. There is another group of pianists who engage with these compositions and have both hands, but are functionally left-handed. These pianists are afflicted with focal dystonia, a neurological condition due to the misfiring of neurons in the sensory motor cortex, the layer of neural tissue covering the brain. In such cases, the prolonged and practiced use of the hand in performance gives rise to a distorted map of the hand in the mind. How do these emerging neurological models of mind with their metaphors of a map of the hand that is located in the sensory motor cortex take us back to the dualistic riddles of early modernity? What is the hand at the end of my arm and how does that relate to the hand in my mind? I recently was made aware of a curious commission from Ludwig to a celebrated Viennese puppeteer, a fact that obviously was of no small interest to me. Richard Techner had studied art in Prague and having examined the Javanese rod puppets brought back to Europe by Dutch travellers, he adapted these to engage with the tastes of a European audience. His puppet company, Figurenspiegel, showed a dualistic model of the world of illusion. He had a female figure whose white, chalky face transforms into a skull and a gorilla whose lips retract to bear the animal's fangs. His engagement with the rod puppets certainly had a significant impact on the art form in the West. What Wittgenstein commissioned from him was a hand-held looking glass. This is from a photograph in the Wittgenstein archive, which is my only exposure to the object. And it seems to be a, a convex glass mounted on a carved handle. The handle is covered in gnomish figures, in contorted shapes, while the glass itself has an image of a hypermodern architectural design in it. The incongruent pairing of the brutish figures and the austere modernity captured in the glass seem to refer to one another. What might be implicit in this form? Obviously, for Techner, the mirror and the puppet are in a dialogue. His theatre is, after all, named Figurenspiegel, figure mirror, though, of course, Spielen also catches rather nicely the additional idea of games and Wittgenstein's even significant place Sorry, only significant place in theorizing the language game comes to mind here. It's evident that in some ways the image in the glass is resonant with the celebrated House Wittgenstein, commissioned by Ludwig's sister Margaret Stoneborough Wittgenstein from the architect Paul Engelmann with the assistance of her brother, who focused with characteristically exacting precision on the design of the details. Wittgenstein had, as a young man, spent a period of voluntary exile at Skjölden in Norway, 
where he described his ascetic lifestyle, believing that renunciation was a principle to pursue in his drive toward the ultimate goal of life. Recently, while I was in Oslo for a workshop on animism in Japan, I became aware of what seemed to have prompted some elements of the design for the handle. This artifact is in the Viking Museum in Oslo and is an example of what is referred to as tingalent, the decorative wood carving associated with Viking culture. This piece would have, been, uh, would have decorated the area above and behind the chief oarsman who handled the steering oar. Something in this piece must have resonated with Wittgenstein sufficiently profoundly for him to commission Techner to contrive a work that incongruously brought together the mirrored scene of the modernist house and the elusively primordial emblem of Viking artifacture. Perhaps we get a sense here of the deeply contradictory young philosopher with clearly ascetic tastes who had been raised in one of the most affluent homes in Europe. And here again is that mirror for you to see. And you note in particular the large sort of staring, bulging eyes in those um, contorted figures. And here by contrast is the Wittgenstein family home in which Ludwig and his brothers had been raised. After Rudy's death by cyanide in the Viennese bar, his father forbade the family to ever mention his name. This is a mode of magical thinking, as if the person resides in and is activated by its name. Wittgenstein is acutely aware of the magical properties implicit in ordinary habits of thought. I have suggested that his conception of the certain is more akin to belief than knowledge. Another of his late papers, Remarks on Fraser's Golden Bough, is destabilizing to read because so counterintuitive. His language ventriloquizes the idioms of those he, seems to, he seeks to critique, and here he mimics the rhetoric of the Scotsman, Sir James George Fraser, whose work he addresses explicitly. Wittgenstein's thoughts are characteristically enigmatic and epigrammatic in style. He contemplates the same savage who, apparently in order to kill his enemy, sticks his knife through a picture of him, really does build his hut of wood and cuts his arrow with skill and not in effigy. This compressed cluster of thoughts compels us to acknowledge that human lives are composites of complex and simultaneous modes of analysis. Wittgenstein asserts that knowledge may well be grounded in material culture and practical fact, and yet are not inimical to fancy, longing, imagination. The instances described above might seem remote from the worldview of the Viennese philosopher, but in the following passage, he sketches a mysticism such as he himself surely knows as his life experience of profound and multiple losses testifies. And I quote, Burning in effigy, kissing the picture of one's beloved. That is obviously not 
based on the belief that it will have some specific effect on the object which the picture represents. It aims at satisfaction and achieves it. Or rather, it aims at nothing at all. We just behave this way and then we feel satisfied. The idea that one can beckon a lifeless object to come just as one would beckon a person. In standard scholarship, magical and scientific thinking are often imagined as stations on a teleological chain with science superseding magic. Keith Thomas's magisterial religion and the decline of magic examines the containment and extinction of magical thinking with the rise of new Protestant orthodoxies, which had to test and police the boundaries between true faith and heresy. Miracles in particular, he suggests, come under scrutiny. The special place of the miracle as a validation of faith provides a valuable discursive chain for anyone interested in exploring the managing of contradictions in the early modern era. By 1919, Freud, in his essay on The Uncanny, suggests that there is a simultaneity of these mental habits, the the magical and the rationalist thinking, and that this double vision is what gives rise to the feelings of the uncanny. And here is his marvellous formulation. As soon as something actually happens in our lives which seems to confirm the old, discarded beliefs, we get a feeling of the uncanny. It is as though we were making a judgment, something like this. So, it's true then. You can kill another man just by wishing him dead. That the dead really do go on living and manifest themselves at the scene of their former activities. In part because of my interest in the counterintuitive arts of puppetry and illusionism, I have for some while explored the Cartesian model of the person from various perspectives. Martin A. Mills, in his paper, The Opposite of Witchcraft, considers the logic of material and agency inherent in the Cartesian inheritance uh, uh, where actions are embodied and cannot arise purely from intention. And here's a quote from that paper. Of course, the parameters of intentional reality for Descartes stretched at their furthest to the tips of the fingers, and maybe not even that. Intention was bounded by extension. What Mills is asserting here is that in a rationalist understanding, cause and effect are linked through embodied action. I could not just wish a man to be dead, as in Freud's understanding. The grim Wittgenstein family saga has the brooding sense of the inevitable that we know from dramatic form. Somehow the excess of the family narrative is itself counterintuitive, almost implausible. The kind of fatal compulsion Freud notes in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Ludwig had observed the suicide of three brothers, each of whom would in turn have been a lost continent in the family atlas. He observed, too, the reparations ongoing in his brother Paul, the pianist who had lost a right arm. I am struck when I read on certainty at some of the melancholy speculations 
about the unverifiability of observed event. It is haunted work. So, for example, and I quote, I know has a primitive meaning similar to and related to I see, wissen, widere. And I knew he was in the room, but he wasn't in the room, is like, I saw him in the room, but he wasn't there. I know is supposed to express a relation not between me and the sense of a proposition like I believe, but between me and a fact, so that the fact is taken into my consciousness. Here is the reason why one wants to say that nothing that goes on in the outer world is really known, but only what happens in the domain of what are called sense data. In a notebook from 1917, Wittgenstein writes of Dostoevsky, if suicide is allowed, then everything is allowed. If anything is not allowed, then suicide is not allowed. These thoughts are constructed in the conditional tense, as are the opening lines of the uncertainty volume. If you do know that here is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. Such is the framing of a question about certainty from a man who observed the death of brothers and the loss of his brother's hand. Badieu considers this as illustrative of Wittgenstein's confessional writing. However, I think of it as a kind of catastrophic writing that is grounded in autobiographical fact, yet which also works a shift in philosophical thought, pursuing the conceptual distinction between knowledge and certainty. William James, in 1896, had delivered a paper to the philosophical circle of Yale and Brown universities. That essay, The Will to Believe, the author describes as, quote, something like a sermon on the justification of faith to read to you. I mean an essay in justification by faith, a defense of our right to adopt a believing attitude in religious matters, in spite of the fact that our merely logical intellect may not have been coerced. The will to believe, accordingly, is the title of my paper. I've long defended to my own students the lawfulness of voluntary adopted faith. But as soon as they have got well imbued with the logical spirit, they have, as a rule, refused to admit my contention to be lawful philosophically, even though, in point of fact, they were personally, at the, all the time, chock full of some faith or other themselves. James's rather blithe comments about voluntarism here seem to miss the mark, and this is where Wittgenstein's insights are so powerful. We do not choose between knowledge and certainty. In fact, we often cover the one operation through the rhetorics that pertain to the other. Such is the complexity of mental habits that knowing and believing operations are perpetually intertwined, entangled. They are both core habits of mind, now reinforcing one another in processes such as Althusser would call ideology, or in observances through which ritual and repetition would make action possible, say in such practices as playing the piano, even with two hands. At times, as Freud locates in his work on the uncanny, 
we are given a glimpse of the two standing side by side as a shadow might mimic the object or the object might mimic a shadow. Quote, I know that a sick man is lying here. Nonsense. I'm sitting at his bedside. I'm looking attentively into his face. So I don't know then that a sick man is lying here? Neither the question nor the assertion makes sense. Wittgenstein's considerations suggest to me that artificial intelligence does not approach the complexity of mind until it can engage with the simultaneity of knowing and believing. Before concluding, and these are my last comments, I'd like to return briefly to the idea of passing, which I've referred to earlier. Wittgenstein in On Certainty notes, that I am a man and not a woman can be verified. But if I were to say I was a woman and then try to explain the error by saying I hadn't checked the statement, the explanation would not be accepted. That rather enigmatic meditation calls to mind the Turing test, in which Paul Turing, the British mathematical genius responsible for breaking the code of the Nazi enigma machine, is seeking a way of identifying human from artificial intelligence. He posits the version of an old parlor game, the imitation game in which a man, player A, and a woman, player B, are positioned in separate rooms, each with a typewriter. In the original version, they are asked a series of questions and both try to convince their audience that each is the other. In Turing's alternative version, player A is a machine and the interrogator is to test which player is the machine. And that paper was published in Mind in 1950. Turing attended Wittgenstein's lectures on the foundations of mathematics in 1939. From the archive of these events, it seems that the two men disagreed on a fundamental question. Wittgenstein was in favor of tolerating contradiction within mathematics. Turing argued against Wittgenstein about contradiction, positing that the toleration of a contradiction would, in application, lead to the collapse of bridges. I recall to mind here my considerations above on the Wittgenstein family and passing, while I have suggested that the Techner-Mirror commissioned by Wittgenstein is suggestive of a profound sense of a contradictory understanding of semblance and reality. Turing died of cyanide poisoning in 1952. Ludwig's brother Rudi had killed himself by taking cyanide in a Viennese bar. Turing had been convicted of acts of gross indecency and sodomy. Wittgenstein, in Uncertainty, invokes the law court as the exemplary context in which I am certain could replace I know in every piece of testimony. When reading the announcement, I was wondering if you were if you were going to go to the 
Um, I believe Breitbart um, um, take off on, uh, I think it's deconstructionism about the relativity of truth. Uh, I think you hinged on the predecessors, but um, if you can, I don't, I don't know if it's Foucault, but I'm, I don't, I'm a, just a physicist, so. Um, I've got a mic here, I think I can be heard. So, um, I mean, I'm, I think that part of what this set of puzzling around um, uh, a radical understanding of um, relativism has precipitated a deep anxiety, and we are now having to come to terms with a kind of reckoning and understanding of the implications of our, our kind of philosophical skepticism, because we are trapped in a logic where someone is asserting that there are no facts. And that puts us in an extremely precarious situation politically. But I don't think that we can allow that kind of um, bad faith appropriation of a philosophical complexity allow us to retreat from the philosophical complexity. I think we need to to find a way of engaging in a direct and uh, meaningful way the fact that we now apprehend the uh, the profundity of meaning and the fact that we are in this condition in which we, where the, there are facts to be known, there are faiths and beliefs which we hold, and there have always been systems of interrogation of those as separate spheres. So I, I mean, I absolutely take the anxiety, and I know that this is, uh, it, you know, very di- difficult thinking that we have to do because we have to come to terms w- with the fact that people will violate the contract of um, generous and meaningful thought. Um, my name is Eileen, and I'm an uh, alumni, and I was an English major, and I ended up being a drama therapist. Uh, I was just interested in the talk you gave. I always wanted to read Wittgenstein, but I was always afraid to because I figured I wouldn't understand him. Um, so I was following along as best I could here, and so much of it seemed to be about this liminal space that we're in around um, at least as I was hearing the fact that he was a, a Jew who wasn't a Jew, and he talked about, um, you had at the very end there said, um, because once a Jew, you're always a Jew kind of in the way these things are thought of. And then he said that, but if I was to say I was a woman, but I was, or, but if I was to say I am a man and not a woman, but then if I was to say I was a woman and that would not be accepted, I didn't know the exact line, but what it seemed to suggest was how coded everything is in the fact that people are Jewish but not really allowed to be. People are homosexual then, but weren't, it wasn't really talked of in good company. And you could lose your life for being Jewish. You could lose your life for being um, homosexual. And then it's, he came to, you said something about suicide is either... Could you go back to that yeah, so piece? He, he says basically that if everything is allowed, then suicide is allowed. And if anything is not allowed, then suicide is not allowed. So it's, you know, the, the work is very complex because Wittgenstein is always thinking about things that, that he is profoundly committed to interrogating. You know, very often philosophy kind of detaches itself 
from the active uh, affective arena of the thinker. And it, it loses itself in a kind of cerebral bliss. But Wittgenstein always seems to be drained back into trying to explain his knowable universe. His philosophy for him is, in a very profound way, I think, um, an act of trying to console himself for the misery of his condition. So one always feels a kind of a surcharge of emotional meaning. And so when he makes these observations about suicide, yes, there are intellectual uh, reflections, but they're also trying to understand in what condition are my siblings now placed? He's, you know, he's asking him, and of course he's asking it about himself too, because he was very often profoundly despairing, and there was a kind of proliferation of suicides in Vienna, and what would have persuaded him to stay alive? What is that kind of threshold? And I think the fact that he was so interested in asking questions that he stayed inside the business of asking questions and didn't foreclose the question to himself. But didn't he die young? And I yes, he, he died, died of prostate cancer, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for the talk. It was so exciting and provocative. Um, I, I was wondering about the idea of humiliation, which seems kind of adjacent to the topics that you're covering um, along the lines of the prosthetics, the potential exposure of Jewishness and homosexuality. Um, but I was wondering about if you had any thoughts about how it related to certainty, um, because it seems like um, exposure is not the same as knowledge. And I was just wondering your thoughts in general on this. Gosh, that's... Uh a very rich and interesting thing to think with um, because he, he quite clearly is demonstrating that knowing something uh, is, you know, can't be taken at face value. So the, I, I think your suggestion there that one needs to have a kind of an asymmetrical pairing between certainty and humiliation and knowing that there's very something very interest, in, interesting in that kind of the, the deflection of the one question into the other. Um, and I, I think particularly if one looks at the case of Paul, the anxiety about being um, exposed um, is something obviously that um, Ludwig and his brothers, they spend their whole lives, the father was an incredibly vehement man and they lived inside the vehemence of a father and they obviously lived in a kind of fugitive relation to themselves because of the absolute law of the father. So I think all of that set of, um, in the most intimate of spaces, inside the family arena, that's probably the, the place where we do the most um, creative work of misrepresentation. <laughs> and that's, you know, a, a really horrifying thing to realize, that it's in our most intimate space that we are least candid. Um, it's much easier to dissemble who, who you are in an elsewhere, but in that kind of grounded place, that's where we l- learn so brilliantly and achieve so brilliantly to be liars. So. We <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's marvelous for me, the, the willingness with which we will deceive ourselves. Hi there. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question which just maybe takes us a little bit slightly beyond what you talked about explicitly, but which has to do with the productive contradictions of a theatrical experience. Yes. In the way that, so I'm a theater maker, 
Uh, and when, when I think about writing or producing theater, there's this constant uh, contradiction between you have uh, people on stage, they're simultaneously actors, and they are their real selves. And with something like puppetry, that's even more pronounced. You have these materials that everybody knows are materials filled with sawdust. Uh-huh. And yet we also are meant to believe and want to believe and believe they are real in some way. And so I wonder if there's something from your experiences making theater that has, you know, like what the cross-pollination between those experiences and some of these academic ideas, how that works for you. I mean, I think that's, you know very thrilling and complex terrain, and I sort of nimble around the edges of it all the time. Um, Particularly with puppetry, one understands that there is... All all witnesses, all observers of a puppet performance are watching themselves, observing something that they know has no cognitive capacity, has no internal world knows absolutely that that anything that appears to emanate from that um, device is being projected from an outside. So I think there must be something enormously profound in the way that we are constructed, that we apprehend from the get-go that we are um, receivers the the human side. I think that we have been, in a way, one of the reasons why we... Uh, embrace the puppet so meaningfully is that um, the human infant is effectively a puppet. It has no mode of self-expression. It has no capacity to reciprocate in the world. It's just a little bundle of sticks and cloth that lies in a a corner on the floor until it gets caught in that projective relation with its puppeteer. And the adult responds to that little one, and that little one in turn responds to the adult. So, oh, you clever child, and the child then gurgles and oozes and realizes that that gets a degree of affirmation, and that goes back into the child, and so on. So there's a kind of a circuit, and this is the only way that our species reproduces itself. You know, the animal in us can cope with other things, but there's something about the human being that is constituted by that dialogical circuit. So I think that we are actually hardwired to believe in puppets because our species can't exist without it. And I think the same process happens with actors, that we are aware that a great... And this is extremely subterranean. uh, When you have a live performer there, you don't have to be as attentive to to the fact of your um, being duped because you can always believe that the impulse is being generated spontaneously and um, suggestively from inside the actor, even though we know, because we observe puppetry, that it's come from elsewhere, it comes from the outside. So I think that these are all kind of allegories of one another, and I think it is really constitutive of the human species. Exactly, yeah. I've written a paper on the as-if world of puppetry theatre. As if we live in that provisional knowing and not knowing at the same time. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you, Where sir. are you? <laughs> uh, thank you for the talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hi, uh, there you are. Hi. hi. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a PhD student in, in genetics here at UC Berkeley. And um, my question was more related on what would be the views of Wittgenstein on uh, the certainty 
of scientific facts that have uh, experimentation and discussion behind, uh, but we always have to keep in mind that, nevertheless, they might be wrong. How, how can I fit this idea into these two realms of knowledge and certainty? Well, it is interesting because Wittgenstein started out as an engineer and he designed an aircraft engine and so on. So he clear and he went to Cambridge specifically to work with Russell because he wanted to work on mathematics. So there is something in him that is impelled in uh, a real commitment to that kind of um, the intellectual um, discipline of a kind of scientific. Um, mathematical inquiry, but I think that the more that he immerses himself in that and he keeps on reframing the question that he's asking because there's a sort of a surplus and a residue of a world that's not addressed by that paradigm. So I think that this is a, a problem for Wittgenstein and I think he has various, even though at a certain point he decides to stay in philosophy, but inside philosophy he changes careers in a way. So I think he changes careers a number of times trying to find an instrument that will be able to address the, um, the uh, unforgiving relentlessness of his uh, attempt to, to uh, find a, a truth for himself. Well, from an engineer to a philosopher, and then he comes the first model of philosophy to the second model of philosophy. And I think in a way that the uncertainty... Um, the, the moment of writing uncertainty is almost a third model of philosophy that he's where belief is something that he begins to talk about, although he doesn't call it belief. Uh, I think that there. And what were the first names of the first two models? So the first model is a kind of a picture theory of language, where he thinks that the world is um, in a kind of reciprocal le- relation to the description of the world. And then he decides that's in, inadequate to, to understand what's going on. And then he des, decides to use a kind of a um, language game in which the, everyone who is inside a specific set of codes will apprehend the way of representing the world. But you have to be inside the game. You have to be a rule player in order to understand what's going on. And then I think in this last kind of as he's in decline and reinterpreting the world, he has this much more metaphysical understanding. Yeah, I found this uh, notion of catastrophic writing that you set up as kind of opposed to the non-philosophy epithet. Fascinating. And there's something I, I wanted, I mean, what I found strike, or what I always find striking with Wittgenstein or in trying to read Wittgenstein, I must say, not really ever succeeding, uh, is the, are these exemplary scenes mm. that he builds. Yeah, that uh, he moves through these scenes. And you connected this catastrophic writing to the, 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 the simultaneity of knowledge and, and belief or certainty. Now, I just wanted to hear you... <laughs> Talk a Damn. little bit more about that. How how you see that as kind of playing through these exemplary scenes that he builds, kind of what replaces the image. I mean, it's another thing. It's uh, you could also call it. It's the language games as they're performed by him in a somewhat experimental way, time and again. You know, it's it's very complex and. 
uh, kind of addictive to think about what this mind is and what mind is generally. Uh, uh, a rather frivolous response is to re- recollect that for Wittgenstein, probably his greatest pleasure was to go to uh, see Western movies. You know, he loved to lose himself in this kind of um, easeful, playful terrain where everything would be mapped out and you, and you would apprehend it. But I think part of what is vexing for him is that he has to constantly wrestle with a circumstance in which the, um, the inputs and the outputs are asymmetrical with one another and one doesn't know where the narrative form is leading and so on. So I think that even though he takes his, his release from those sorts of dimensions. I think, you know, that's why, why I like, in a way, the idea of the, the Buster Keaton figure, who's constantly operationalizing a world that he knows is going to betray him, but that's not going to stop him operationalizing that world. So, so he sets things in place, knowing that that's only always going to confound him, and that he's setting up the, the terms of his own betrayal. But that's not going to stop him doing it. I don't know if that even begins to get at the question. It's fascinating that in this, that this moment of abandonment is like enacting like the receiving aspect that you emphasized mm. at the end, time and again. In the, I would have to go back to these mm. exemplary scenes. Me and too. I found also <laughs> fascinating that there is something, just for me, to, who is, has been unable to understand Wittgenstein anyway, really, uh, there is this haunted, hmm. <laughs> this haunted, so it gives me a, a, a different take on, you know, the, I, on the I, reading I, of these scenes. I'm, I'm, I'm wary of reading the Wittgenstein f- philosophy as if it's the equivalent of biography or autobiography, or if one can explain Wittgenstein and his incredible complexity of thought by understanding his, his world place in Vienna and the the catastrophe of the family romance. I don't think those things uh, are symmetrical to one another, and I don't think one solves Wittgenstein's philosophy by getting Wittgenstein's life. You know, so I'm very cautious of not doing that. But I'm trying to think about how these, um, the profundity of this. Most of us live in a kind of split way, way with those as, as separate spheres. What's so profoundly moving about Wittgenstein is that he can't separate those spheres. And that may have to do with him being in a kind of particular kind of psychic condition, that he, um, the way that he lives and has his being is the way that he represents the living of that being and he's aware of both of those things all the time, that there's an insider-outsiderness in Wittgenstein. And that's why I think these paradigms of the, the, the puppet and so on and why he when he commissions something from Teshne, he commissions a mirror which has this kind of hypermodernist and this incredible primitive, primitive form, formulation that are holding each other in place. I think it's that thinking inside and outside the system simultaneously that's so compelling in the work. Yeah. Uh, along these lines, and, and, and that's so interesting. I, I think of, on the mirror, of the mirror on the one hand, and then I think of the villa that he worked so hard on, and his father's villa on the other, which is uh, a superfluity and a, and a profusion of, uh, of, uh, of kind of hyper-civilized uh, meaning compared to the kind of pared-down 
um, spare um, modernism of, of, the, of the building that he helped to create. But that's not what I was going to ask about. I was going to ask about... Um, you started by talking about... I mean, obviously, he wrote an essay on certainty, and you're, you're writing... You're, you're, you're giving a talk on uncertainty. And you talk about the I know versus I thought I knew, in mm. terms of more. Which is a marvelous observation that, you, that right. we forget the... Uh, right. I, I knew we forget about the, the, what that sentence actually means is I thought I knew. Right, right, right. And, and, and so I'm... I'm, I'm curious because you say that he was moving. He didn't. He didn't use the word believe in his book, in his, in, in his, in this essay. Right. Um, but you're pointing at it, and I'm wondering if you could loop back to that initial uh, um, phrasing of "I know" versus "I thought I knew," uh, and that concept of belief. Well, let's see if we can find it on the screen. And we can think this together. And it's quite interesting just to skim back through these images and hold all of these different dimensions in place at the same time. There's so many different um, key signifiers in that sentence. For I know seems to, you know, all these prevarications, you know, it doesn't describe, for I know seems to describe a state of affairs which guarantees what is known. All of these are such freighted terms that there's such a kind of resonance in each moment in the formulation. Um, Guarantees what is known, guarantees it as a fact. So knowing and facticity, those things are not absolutely equivalent to one another because he has to say them both. And then this rather marvelous, one always forgets the expression, I thought I knew. Um, And I think that that's all too little used in life because one, the certitude is what one has to have in order to act. And so there's the, the, the hesitation, you know, it's, you know, one thinks of Hamlet or someone like that, that one can only ever be in the condition of thinking that you knew because on what do you found the fact that you knew? There is always only the, I thought I knew. And it's, you know, it's some, something that we as a species are very reluctant to embrace about ourselves. Right, we act on that all the time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What is it that I think I know? Um, <laughs> one always forgets the expression, I think. Well, I think one is, in this moment he's looking back on past behaviors. He's saying... So he was disappointed. I, th- I think that's conditional of his being from beginning to end. So there's two things. Yeah, on. absolutely. There's a and then there's a mistake. Yes. So uh, why does he channel them independently? Do they come together? Are they linked? <sighs> uh, this, is, uh, this is a very late essay. You know, this is, he was, um, you know, it, these are in the last months of his life. And he, it was never, he didn't actually put this together himself. These are kind of thoughts and meditations that his students then cohere together as a volume and try to to precipitate something that's a coherent argument across what were the the meditations of an ailing man. So these are all kind of fragmentary, fragmentary considerations. So I think that there's something of the nature of that, the the consolation of a, of a self that is foundering 
through holding onto a little lozenge rather than formulating an argument. I think it's a moment again to thank Professor Taylor. Thank you. thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.